remember a mechanic told me one day that when we were trying to identify a problem I had on a vehicle, and he said, when you've basically, you've kind of tried everything and you're just, you're just stumped. He said, I've always found for me it works to go back to the basics. And he said, I just start pulling spark plugs. I just start looking at those major basic components that make that engine tick. And usually I'll find a problem there. A lot of times we're looking in all this complicated mess. It's just a little old spark plug. Just one little old spark plug. You changed it. You put it in. You thought it was right. But something didn't quite function like it should have functioned. And so today I, I want to share with you a very basic message. This is again Christianity 101. But I want to, I want to if I can title it, I'll title it Christian Realities. Because sometimes we are shocked when something happens to us as if we should have been spared or as if that shouldn't have happened to us. Because sometimes, quite frankly, as Christians, our lives, particularly where we've been, we've been in a wealthy nation. Our lives sometimes can be so smooth that we forget that God never promised that to us. Luke chapter 14, I want you to listen carefully. Verse 25. Now while you're standing, just a moment before you sit, I'm just going to give you a real quickie here. The Lord has been invited to a house. And He's in a house. Back in chapter, this chapter, verse 1, it's one of the chief Pharisees. This guy is in the upper echelon of society. The religious crowd and the Lord's been invited to his house. And the Lord went. Didn't turn him down. He knew what kind of character it was, but he went anyway. There was a fellow there in that house that the Bible said he had something. Only time mentioned in Scripture, he had the dropsy. That's not a word we use anymore. We would call it swelling. The dropsy is something that comes when you have too much fluid. They, did, they, they called it years ago, they called it the dropsy, but you had too much fluid and you swell. Even most time it's in feet and legs and hands, but it could even happen so bad people in their face and their face would be swollen, kind of like it droops. They would call it the dropsy. Today we wouldn't really look at the swelling, swelling as much in our medical world. Today we would try to find the source, like congestive heart failure or something of that nature. Why is this swelling happening? So we wouldn't... We wouldn't attach to it the idea of dropsy. We wouldn't attach some other source that had brought it about. But the Lord heals him. And in one second, at the touch of Jesus, all that swelling and fluid disappears from his body. And he is restored. That's a powerful thing, isn't it? And then the Lord looks around and he rebukes them. Folks are there and he, re- he does a wonderful miracle, but he rebukes them for their pride and how they choose out the chief rooms. Then he tells them, when, because they've invited him to a supper, he says, when y'all make a big supper, he said, why don't you invite the halt and the lame and the blind, the poor? Why don't you invite some folks who can't repay you? 
In other words, the only reason you want you to have a party is not because you're being generous, is you want to get something out. You want something back. In other words, you're giving to get. And Jesus said, why don't you just give to give? And then he tells about a supper. He gives a parable about a supper, a man who had a great supper, king. And he invited all these folks to the supper. And, and then when the supper was ready and he, he'd sent out the invitations, he sent his servants, go tell them it's ready. And they started making excuses. Now we'll have to, these excuses are important because they play in that. But one of them says, I, I just got married, man. I got me a wife. I, I can't come. And said, well, I bought me a piece of ground. I, I got to go check it out. Another one said, well, I, I, I bought me some oxen and I, I got to go prove them. Are you kidding me? You bought oxen without proving them? You bought land without checking it out? You got a wife and you're telling me she wouldn't be happy to go to a king's house to eat? Obviously, these are just a facade, something to hide and cover up. The real reason is they don't like this king and they're not interested in going to his house. And so he said, why don't you go out there in the highways and the byways? I want you to go find them. I want my house filled. Go invite all the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. What he just told that Pharisee to do? Go, go invite them. And he said, but all those folks that I sent an invitation to, gave them first shot, they're not going to taste even a morsel. They're out. I'm done with them. Buddy, when God writes you off, it's bad. It's a bad day when you refuse Jesus and His invitation. So having said that and dropped that bombshell, he leaves the house. And as he's leaving the house, masses of people start falling in line. Multitudes of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are following him. Jesus was in his day somewhat of an underdog, if I can say that. And you, that's an English term we use. He was kind of the underdog. People are naturally attracted to an underdog. Sometimes even when we don't think he's right, we still want him to win. You know, now Christ was right, obviously, but I mean, everybody was against him. He's a peasant. He's poor. I mean, he has nothing. He's got no social influence. He hadn't been to any of their schools. He hadn't any of their degrees. Everybody seems to be against him. But the common man, they just kind of rooting for him. And when all these rich guys gather around and, and they just show their stuff and this peasant just best them. I mean, he just puts it on them. You know, you can just see the people. Yes. I wish I could have done that. Yes. And they all just kind of join in. They're following Jesus for a lot of reasons. And I want you to see what he does. Verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him. Get the picture. Here he is leading masses of people. His 12 disciples, apostles, masses of people. And he stops. He just stops. And he turns and he looks at him and he begins to speak to him. He knows that a lot of folks following him that have no clue what they're getting into. They don't understand even why they're following him. And they're following him for the wrong reason. And he 
speaks to them. Listen to him. Looking out in that crowd. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Now at this point, eyebrows are starting to raise. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I followed for the healing, not a cross. Whoa, 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 what are you talking about? And Jesus defends these strict demands and says, for which of you, intending to build a tower, because that's what he intended to build, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all the behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, he was a king, going to make war against another king, exactly what he was doing, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that goeth or cometh against him with 20,000. You're outnumbered two to one. You better do some checking. Okay? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, or so therefore, is the word, the idea. Whosoever he be of you, that forsaken not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, watch this. Just take out that chapter for a moment. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Then drew near unto him all the public and sinners, publicans and sinners, for to hear him. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Then drew near all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. The rest of chapter 15 is connected to that verse, but I'm not going to read it. I'll probably just mention it. You may be seated this morning. Would you say amen to God's word? Christian realities. I've given you, I know I kept you standing a little while, but you won't die. <laughs> I've given you a little background of what's happened here and shared with you so when we read that you could understand this deliberate, deliberate comments of Christ to constantly keep the people around him aware of what was really going on. Christ did not want anyone to be deceived. He was not interested in you following Him so He could have a certain number. Christ never cared about numbers. 
He was never mesmerized by crowds. He was never taken in by fame. And he had it. He never lost sight or got caught up with accolades and, and applause. And, and I'm telling you, he was surrounded by it many a time. Folks are coming. They're talking him up left and right. But it never entered into the psyche of Jesus and caused him to lose focus of the realities that he had. And the realities was as he laid a bombshell on that crowd that day that many a preacher would not do. Many a preacher would never preach a message that he knows is going to cause him to lose people. Jesus knows what he's going to say. That crowd, a bunch of them is going to begin to fade away. Uh, I didn't get in it for this. I didn't bargain for this. I didn't ask for this. Uh, I, sorry, I didn't know that's what it was all about. Excuse me, please. I'm going home. Yeah. He knew that would happen. But can I tell you something? If you're not following Jesus for the real reason, you're going to do it some point anyway. And Christ says, best just do it right now. Let's just, just take care of it right here at the beginning and uh, get it straight. I'm not playing the game. I didn't come here for little things or, or, or for me just to, to, to do some nice things among you. I came to build a tower. I came to my fight a war and I've counted the cost and this is what it's going to take. That's it. I want you to look at that. I want you to look at some of those realities. Listen carefully here to what the Bible says. So he begins to talk to them. Mentions that crowd and looks at him. He's turning. He's got all of their attention. He's deliberately stopped the procession. And he's going to speak to them. And he says, any, any, if anyone comes after me, and that's what they're doing, coming after him, right? They're following him. Any of you folks out there, if you're going to follow me, you're going to come to me, And you don't hate your father and your mother, your wife, your children, your brother, your sister, and even yourself. You can't be my disciple. I'm, I'm going to take it a little slow, but I want it to sink in. Now, we might have to ask ourselves here a little bit, well, what did he mean by that? Well, I don't think the crowd had any problem understanding him. They're a Jewish crowd. They use those kinds of extreme um, contradictions, if you will. They knew full well what he meant. But we may not. So let's, let's express a little bit what he said. Well, if you know anything at all about Jesus, if you've sat under his ministry at any time, and in this day and hour, if you've read anything at all about Jesus, it would be a contradiction of his person if he is advocating that we actually have hatred or hearts of malice toward our family. Nobody loves children more than Jesus. Nobody honors father and mother more than Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's he who has given us one of those rich commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother. 
It is he who has told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is he who has told us to love one another, love your brethren. It will be him on the basis of Christ that Paul will say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved his church. Obviously, this man is not a man of contradictions. He may be a man that shakes your world, but there's not a contradicted in Jesus Christ. So we can throw it out the window very quick that Jesus did not mean that we should have malicious, evil hearts toward a family member. Matter of fact, it's noble to love your mother and your father. It's noble to love your wife. It's noble for you to love your children and your brother and your sister and even a proper love and care for your own person is biblical. No man ever yet hated himself, Ephesians 5 tells us. And so it's a noble thing. So Christ is obviously not telling us or looking at that crowd and telling them that they need to have this heart of hatred towards their family. No, that's not it. The idea is this. See, God tells us to love our family, but there are times in our life, there are times when the will of your family or expressing your love towards your family so that you, you give to them, you, you put them above yourself, you do for them, that in order for you to, to fulfill a, an obligation to them or to, in, in order for you to do what they would like for you to do, it will bring you in contradiction to what Jesus wants you to do. And when that happens, when there is a contradiction between the demands of Christ and the demands of family, you better already have it settled. You better already have it written down that when you get in that quandary, when you get in that position where family is pulling this way and Christ is pulling that way, you better know where you're going to yield. There cannot be any internal battle at that point. There cannot be anything that's going on inside of you to where there is another love in your life that competes with your love for Christ. So that it's hard. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can disappoint my child. I don't know if I can disappoint my wife. I know God wants me to do this, but they will be upset with me. Can I tell you if in that moment you are not ready and willing and not decisive in that moment and say, well, I'm sorry to disappoint him, but I will not disappoint Jesus. And I'm going to do what he says first and the Lord will take care of the rest. If I'm hated, if I'm rejected, then that will just have to be what happens. But Christ is first in my life and my loyalty to him supersedes my loyalty to every other person, even my own life. If it comes down to my blood, if it comes down to laying my head on the chopping block, if it comes down to losing my job, if it comes down to losing my family, if I lose my child, if I lose 
lose my brother, if my parents turn against me, then I will obey Christ at all costs. I will love him and be loyal to him. They will understand one thing, that my life has a supreme loyalty, and that loyalty is to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, you can't waver. You can't get in the box of temptation and have another love compete with your love for Jesus. Have you been there? Of course you have. You've been there. Do not answer my question, but just think for a moment. How many times in your life has the demand of a family member contradicted the demand that Christ has placed on you? That you know God wants you to do something. God wants you to be faithful to His church. God wants you to be faithful in the things of Him that He has demanded of you. But at this moment, if you stay true to the doctrine, if you stay true to the teaching, if you stay true to His church, then your family is going to leave you. Your parents will reject you. I felt that. I've been there. I've had my own parents misunderstand me. But I had one decision that's already made. I've got to go this route. This is the light that God's opened up to me. This is what His Word says. Cost me. Cost me. Cost me a lot of hurt. Cost me a lot of pain. But you have to be there. I just want you to put yourself in that. How well have you done in those situations? How well have you done even on your job when your employer demands something out of you? How well have you done when you got a family member that pulls at you? Oh, we're going to do this, and hey, the family's getting together, and 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 we want you to we want you to come over and be with us, and but uh, when are you doing that? Oh, we're going to do that on Sunday morning. Oh. Well, I might could have come on Saturday, but Sunday I got church. How well have you done when those situations have presented themselves in your relationships where pleasing God meant displeasing someone else? Your wife will be upset with you. You're going to do something in the house that you know needs to be done, but you won't do it because you know it's going to cost you irritating your spouse. You know that she's going to pout at you for a week. You know that, buddy, supper's going to be cold. The atmosphere's going to be cold. But you know God's called you to do it, but you will not do it. How many times has your child got in trouble and they've hit the bottom of the barrel and instead of letting them feel the consequences of their sin and let God deal with them according to their consequences? I just talked to a good brother and he told me a difficult situation about a time in which is. This family member was brought to this a child, and they committed a wrong, and and, and they got in trouble with it, with the law. And they, they said, "Daddy, will you bail me out?" And he said, "I wanted to do it so bad. That was my child. I wanted to do it. I wanted them. They were they were penitent. They they were they were sorry. They were they were absolutely realized they'd been foolish and made an error. But he said, I thought about it and I prayed about it, and I had to look them in the eye." 
cry and tell them, I'm telling you, you've made this and you're going to have to bear the consequences. And later, oh, it hurts so bad. But he said later, they thanked me. They thanked me for letting them face the full consequence of their sin. I'm telling you, there comes a time justice has got to be first. There comes a time that the law must be maintained. There comes a time that you say, it's Jesus. I've got to have one supreme love that guides my life or I will be double-minded. I'll be up and down. I'll float with the crowd. I need an overarching principle that controls my destiny and decisions. It'll be a time when you stand alone, but you will have to say, Jesus has led me thus. I must obey him. Can I tell you, if you don't have that, where you are willing to choose Jesus over everything and everyone else, if you're not willing to do that, I'm going to be honest with you. You just, well, put your songbook down, lay your Bible to the side, grab your coat, go get in your car, and go out and enjoy what few days you got left in this world. Because you cannot be a Christian. How many of you admit that's pretty tough, isn't it? But I didn't say that. Jesus did. And in that time and that hour, when you refuse to honor the will of your loved one so that you may honor the will of Christ, it will look and they will think that you hate them. It will look as if you hate them. But that's how strong and that is how fervent your love must be to Jesus. That nothing, nothing can compete with it. Then if that's not enough, that would have been enough right there. He kind of digs on one of those a little bit. That last one particularly, it says that if you don't hate your own life, even down to your own self, you got something you love and you don't want to give it up. He says, give it up. He says this. And if any of you will not take up his cross and follow me, can't be my disciple. What? Now the cross has lost its significance today, I'm just sad to say. And in Christendom today, we know this. Here we go. This is about all it is. Piece of wood. A Christian emblem. A mark of our religion. A symbol of our religion. That's all it is. And beyond the songs that we have to sing about it, it has no real meaning and significance in our life because Christianity today is a life of ease. It's a life of acceptance. It's a life of tolerance of sin and that Christianity that today has become the Christianity today is a Christianity that makes no waves. 
that makes no demands upon a life. And it's this easy believism that we've come to do. And it's become a piece of jewelry we can hang around our neck. It's become something that's idolatrous. And we look at it, we sing about it. But what I want to know is how does it feel? Right. Come on, brother. Go ahead. Preach. I want to know is if it's become a reality in yes. your life. Well, what does that mean, that cross? Well, you see, it's lost its significance today because really in, in America, we don't have any means of, well, we do, but it's used so little. Forms of execution are almost non-existent because we don't execute anybody any longer. We take men who have taken the lives of others and give them three meals a day and a nice place to stay, roof over their head, and, and uh, place the burden of keeping them on the people. And uh, basically, lock them away, but a lot of times they get back out and go out and do it all over again. A lot of folks out there and find folks on death row, a lot of them repeat offenders. If they ever make it to death row. But nonetheless, we, we, it, none of that means it. But the cross in that hour was something they understood. It was a means of execution the Romans have perfected. Now, I, I don't want to go into the gore of that because that's not what the Bible wants, but they knew it. Right. When he mentioned crosses, probably everybody in that crowd has seen somebody crucified. Oh, yeah. Outside of the city, they saw there were those posts that were there in the ground like a pencil sticking up out of the ground that was there. And then there would be that cross member that they would lay down upon your back. And there, there's differences of opinion on just exactly how that happened. But they knew how it happened. And they knew what it meant. And when you lay that thing upon your back, and there's a little difference here because Jesus said you got to pick it up. Nobody in that culture picked it up. It was laid on you. The Roman government will lay it on you. They will determine you're going to be executed. They will determine. But he says, you're not, I'm not forcing this on you. I'm not putting this cross on you. I'm not going to take you to death. You're going to do it voluntarily. You're going to reach down and look at that instrument of death. And you're going to look and pick it up. The splinters, the blood from the last guys on it. Come on. Yeah. I don't think they cleaned those things. It never got bleached. No, sir. It's got dried blood from the last guy. Pick it up. Put it on you. Identify with it. It's yours. It's your cross. It isn't your neighbor's cross. It isn't your brother's cross. It isn't your mama's cross. It isn't even the cross of Jesus. It's your cross, and I want you to pick it up, put it on your back, and follow me. In other words, following me means you're going to carry something beside yourself. That it's not going to be just from the fact of the extra load that it's going to put on your back. That following me is going to make extra demands. It's not going to be a life where you can just walk up and ease. You are going to carry a burden from the start and if you're not willing to carry something you just will go home going home if you don't want a Christianity that inconveniences you go on home if you don't want a Christianity that's going to hurt you go on home if you want a Christianity that's easy and you can just take it smooth and and nothing's required of you, and 
The only time demands are placed on you is when they're convenient for you. And when it's easy for you to accomplish it, it fits into your schedule. If that's what you expected, go home. That's what Jesus was saying. You can't be in my school. I'm not wasting my time with you. So let's look at this cross a moment, a little more. What's that cross do? It does a couple things. Number one, first time Jesus mentions this, this was radical. This is a gross method of execution by the Romans. The Jews don't use it. No, no, they stoned. You think, well, that's barbaric. A cross is a thousand times more barbaric than a stone. On a cross, you suffer. If you're being stoned, it's not really that bad. All it takes is one big one to hit you across the head first and knock you out, and the rest of them you don't feel. Honestly, you can kill a person with one stone at the right place on the head. Take one big stone, bop them really hard in a certain place on the head, they're done. And the rest of the stones are just people venting their frustration and feeling the vengeance because you killed their daughter. You killed the man's wife. And he ought to be able to stand there and throw those stones and so that he feels some sense of justice has been done because you have taken the life of his wife and you had no right to do that. We leave people with the injustices. We leave people with the anger and the bitterness because we won't execute a criminal. Now, you see, Christianity today don't want anything to do with that. But I'm telling you, the very get-go of it, Jesus used an instrument of execution as a very symbol of what his life is going to be and what your life is going to be. Amazing. And if you can't even understand that instrument, you can't understand anything about this. But they understood because it was prominent in their culture. And so here comes this cross. And Jesus mentioned it the first time when he told his disciples. You can read in Matthew chapter 10. He'll tell them. And he said, I want you to go out. I want you to preach the gospel. And he, he gave them certain instructions, where to go, what to do, what to take with them, how to, how to treat the houses when they got there, and how to respond. He gave them all this information. He talks about this cross. But he, he talks about a little later this context and he says the servant's not above his master if they hated me they're going to hate you if they ran me out of town they're going to run you out of town however they treated the master that's how they're going to treat you take your cross up and follow me that cross number one places you in the company of Jesus that's where he's going that is his destiny on this earth from the day he was born he was meant to die a specific death he was destined for Calvary he was destined for Golgotha he was destined to hang on that cross between heaven and earth. That is his destiny. I'm telling you from the time he was placed into the womb of Mary and he became God incarnate. He's got one destiny in mind and that is the cross of Jesus. The cross that he's going to die on. And he says, I want you to come identify with me. My destiny must be your destiny. My life must be your life. My end must be your end. My lifestyle becomes your lifestyle. The cross places you in the company of Jesus so that however Jesus is treated is how you can expect to be treated. So in other words, those rich Pharisees that mocked you and want to stone you, <coughs> expect the same. Let me ask you, do you think our world is receptive to the real Christ today? Now they'll be receptive to a Christ that's been 
remolded uh, and so that we make him acceptable. But take that cross or that Christ of the scriptures that makes such demands on your life. Christ that says, I'm the way and that's it. Nobody else but me. I'm the only way you can get to God. I'm the only one who can save you. You've got to love me above everything else. And I expect nothing less than complete 100% obedience. I mean, that Jesus, he was rejected. Can I tell you that the attitude to Christ has not changed in the world? There are still antichrists in this society. There are people that hate him. I mean, look at this. When you think, you think this is just something against religion, what's going on in our country, do you think that all the efforts to get rid of Christmas, to get rid of this, and to get rid of that. Do you think that's all about uh, just simply some religious uh, 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 battle that's going on? It's not. It's about this Jesus that makes demands on our life. It's about this Jesus who preaches creation, who says he is the creator. It's about this Jesus that says, without me you can do nothing. It's about this Jesus that says that if you do not live my life, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you've got no life in you. Everywhere he is spoken against. You are bearing the cross when your life clearly identifies with Christ. You lift him up as supreme when you love him supreme. And in that moment when you have to look at that family member and say, I can't come. I'll be in church. Well, we just got here to your house today. Well, about three or four hours, I should be back. Hang around. There's bologna in the fridge, Pepsi Cola in the corner, in the pantry. Help yourself. But I'm going to church. Love for you to come with me. Yes, right. I ain't going to come to your church. Well, why not? So be it. But in that moment when you're identifying with Christ and His demands on your life brings you into reproach and ridicule, you're bearing the cross. That's part of the deal. Jesus is not a well-loved fella. Jesus is not endorsed by the local community. Jesus is, doesn't get a trophy every week. If you look at his name, behind his name, he didn't get 15 awards for all the things that he did, okay? He doesn't have a trophy shelf. He doesn't have a corner where he gets all these accolades. He gets spit on. He gets mocked. He gets ridiculed. He gets misunderstood. He gets pushed down. He, gets, uh, he has people that want to kill, his, kill him all the time. People that are plotting against him. They're having meetings in back corners, in rooms, in buildings, trying to find a way to destroy him. They hate him. They despise him. They don't want anything to do with him and the fact is is that then he is doing things that they simply don't like he's messing up their world and he doesn't like they don't like their world to be messed up I'm telling you when you mess up somebody's world when you get in their playroom and you start saying things it just turns them around and they don't like it you convict them of their sin you convict them of their wrongdoing and they flash back no you can't do that you ain't gotta live that way you ain't gotta do that you ain't gotta dress like that you ain't gotta go down that road 
I don't know about you, but I'm loyal to the Lord. I'm loyal to my Savior. And you may not like it, and you may turn against me, but I cannot go against my Lord. You are bearing the cross when you identify with Jesus, and that identity brings a shame and reproach to your life. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you were actually shamed for being a Christian? When's the last time somebody laid a guilt trip on you because you put Jesus first? Have you taken up the cross? That's what that cross does. It identifies you with Jesus. That cross, the second thing, is it's illuminated by the Lord's cross. The very instrument itself is one of pain. It's ugly. None of us in this room have ever witnessed a crucifixion. The beating, the blood, it's ugly. It's gross. I don't know that you could even, I, I don't know. I think there's probably very few people that could stomach it. That culture was more hardened towards that. They'd seen so much of it. After a while, you get hardened. Guys that go to war and they see so much death around them, after a while, they just get hardened to it. And that culture was somewhat hardened to it as well. But it was still despicable, ugly, gross. It's painful. So this, this cross you put on your back, it isn't an instrument of beauty, Okay. It isn't going to win you the prize and it isn't, it isn't going to make you Mr. Idol that the world just bows at your feet. No, just the very thought of it is going to steer people away. Yes. Now watch this. Jesus never bore a cross for himself. That cross was not because of his sin. That cross was not because he did something bad. That cross was not because he liked to bear burdens. That cross is not because he's just trying to make a statement. That cross is not there to make him look bigger or better. That thing he picked up, it was placed on him, but he, he did it willingly. They'd have never placed it on him if he hadn't wanted it. He'd have never died if he hadn't given himself to him. They tried to kill him a bunch of times before and he just walked away. You think he couldn't have said a few words to Pilate and got out of that, that hall? In just a moment, he'd have been gone. No, they placed that cross on him because he allows it and he wants it. But that cross that he put on him was for you. It's for me. Every bit of it. In other words, this sacrificial life he's going to live is vicarious, substitutionary. That he's putting that cross on him for the benefit of others. Amen. How much of your life is actually lived to the benefit of others? Besides those in your house. When's the last time you have inconvenienced your schedule? To meet someone else's need. You don't preach this message flying 100 mile an hour. Jesus says you're going to live a life in service to others. 
You're going to bear a load and it's going to be for the blessing of others. You'll feel the splinters in your back. You'll feel the weight on your shoulders. For you, what you're going to feel is the pain. What you're going to feel is the heaviness. What you're going to feel is the loneliness. But the end result of that is someone else is going to get blessed. Someone else is going to get benefited. Someone else's life is going to be touched. Because you were willing to carry a load. Someone else didn't have to carry it. Oh, glory to God. I'm telling you, are you not glad that he bore your sins on Calvary? so that you do not have to. Are you not glad that he was willing to be beaten and walk up that path in pain and agony under a load and it was your sin that made it heavy. It was my sin that made it heavy and I'm telling you, his sacrifice gave me life. Jesus said, if you will follow me, you're going to keep others in mind. And your life is going to be a blessing to others. You're going to serve. You're going to give yourself. Hang with me just a little bit more. You're going to suffer for someone else's salvation. I'm just going to be honest with you. We don't see this much in Christianity. Typically for us today... When someone in the church disappoints us, when we have to put up with their ignorance, their unfaithfulness, their rudeness or selfishness, our temptation instead of picking the cross up is to distance ourselves. Well, I ain't going to fool with them anymore. Have you ever heard of a cross? It's heavy. You got to carry the load of someone else. You're gonna, it's going to hurt you. It's going to inconvenience you. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to Christianity. A life of burdens. That becomes a life of blessing for others. Woo! And your blessing will come. Not because of the pain so much. Or, or, or because that, that, that you just gave yourself to pain. But your blessing will come. It's because you see that your toil, your prayer, your willingness to forbear. Your willingness to go after them again. Your willingness to reach out and befriend them again. Your willingness to overlook their rudeness. Your willingness to overlook their offense. Your willingness to reach out and show them the real love of Christ that cost you it hurt you. It hampered you. It inconvenienced you. It burdened you. But when they turn around and when they are converted and you make a real friend and encourage someone to get close to God, I can tell you something. You have borne the cross that God wants you to bear. But you, if you're unwilling to do that, he bore that cross for those who spit in his face. He bore that cross for those who plucked his beard out. He bore that cross for the soldier that put the sword in his side. He bore that cross for the Pharisee that mocked him. He bore that cross for those who left him and abandoned him. 
we better get over our painless Christianity because it is not found in that book. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. Christ, watch this quickly. I'll, I'll try to wrap it up. Just hang with me. Then Jesus says, and as he has said this statement, when he starts talking about taking up a cross, buddy, I'll guarantee you eyebrows are raising. Eyeballs are bulging. And, and the murmuring just starts among them. What's he talking about? What's he mean? Bear a cross. I ain't wearing no cross. I ain't doing that. No way. What's that all about? Hey, that's tough. Ain't not one of those rabbis ever said that. No. What are you doing? Jesus says, well, look, fellas, just reason with me here for a moment. Which of you? And he uses two illustrations, one building a tower and one fighting a battle, but they're both related. Because the idea of tower here is the idea of a tower that is built as a watchtower. This is not some tower that's built as a monument or a memorial. This is a watchtower. This is a tower that you build on the corners of the wall of the city in order to put a watchman in order to protect the city. This is a tower you put out in your vineyard so that you got your vineyard built. You put you up a tower and you put a guy in there so that when the crows come, he can get his little slingshot out or whatever it is. He can chase them birds away so they don't eat your grapes. He can chase the robbers away. He got that a good view of the field. He can stand up in that tower and watch. Anybody he wants to sneak around the corner, get in the fence, boom, he's down there on him. Hey, hey, get out. I see you up here. And if they don't like it, he's got that sling probably, some kind of weapon up there. And man, I tell you what, you get a good uh, uh, a two or three ounce rock upside the head and you'll think twice about getting a grape. That ain't worth it, buddy. No, sir, the little foxes that want to come in, he's there to watch for them. This is a watchtower. Jesus says, I'm building something and I got to guard it. It's going to cost me to keep it. He said, I'm telling you what I build is worthy of protection. What I build is worthy of guarding. And I'm telling you, I'm going to build a tower and it ain't going to be halfway done. I'm going to build a tower that I can put watchmen in and I can keep what I build. It's a tower connected with the possession worthy of guarding. And then he says, and look at his, he says, a king going to make war. He goes to make war. He goes out to meet the enemy. Two things are being seen here, offense and defense. The tower speaks of defense, defending the city. The symbol of war indicates going out to conquer, being offensive towards the enemy. Defense and offense, they're both related. And Jesus says, notice what he did. You got a king, he said, I got somebody coming here. I'm going out to meet him. I ain't going to wait till he gets here. I'm going out to meet him. But I only got 10,000. He's got 20. Can I take him? Can I tell you something? If you're outnumbered, you better have some soldiers that can take out two to one. He got 10,000 going against somebody with 20. That's a two to one odds. You're outnumbered two to one. There have been many battles that have been fought and won when the men have been outnumbered, but because they were disciplined, because they were trained, and because they wouldn't run. Oh, glory. 
Can I tell you today, we're outnumbered. We're outnumbered. But if we are willing to be loyal to him supremely, and if we're willing to take up a cross, we're going to win this battle. Glory. Jesus didn't say the battle wasn't winnable. He just said this is what it's going to take to win it. It's a winnable battle. He did not come and send to the enemy. Hey, I I want to parlay with you here. He didn't come down here and take the white flag and run out there in the middle of the field and say, I want to talk to you, Satan, and let's see if we can take this thing and see if we can talk it out and find some middle ground. Now, I may only have 10,000, but I got cross bearers. Woo! I got people loyal to me. I got people that will lay down their life for me. I got people that will die. They'll choose me over their wife. They'll choose me over their mama. They'll choose me over their papa. They'll choose me over their child. I can win it. I can take it. That's what it's going to cost to do it. Woo! Glory to God. But you're going to lose if you're not loyal to Him and if you're not willing to sacrifice and bear that burden for others. You're going to lose. You're not going to make it. That's tough. And then Jesus comes down. He stated what he's done and he's counted the cost. And that's the cost. Cross bearing and supreme loyalty. And then he summarizes those two with one statement. And he says, so therefore, whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that you have. Forsaking all that you have is being able to look at mother, father, sister, brother in the hour of conflict and say, I choose Jesus. Forsaking all that you have is when you'll put that cross on your back and say, I'll bear this for my brother. I'll sacrifice this for the church. How much does your Christianity cost you? Can I just even give a, a little illustration here? Let's just put it down in terms of money. That's kind of dear to our hearts, isn't it? How many of you, don't raise your hand, have ever made a sacrifice in your budget to get a new possession? Mm. I don't have to do that. I, I, I can get a little extra. I can work a little overtime. I'll do something. I know, it's $100 a month, but six months I have paid for. Man, this is a good deal. I can't pass it up. I got to do this. You thought about it. You considered it. Sacrifice was worth it. How many of you have ever done that for the cause of Christ financially? How many of you have ever made a mission pledge that would cost you? It's amazing to me, we've all done it, okay? I've done it. It's amazing to me in that moment when we hit the super deal, right place, right time, can't pass this one up, but it's going to cost you. You're not going out to eat next month. Mm. Wife's going to have to forego this for a week two weeks or two months or three months. It's worth it though, baby. It's worth it. Man, this car is the best car. It's worth it. I need this thing. (laughs) 
but it's going to strain our budget. But it's only six months. Have you ever had to have a conversation? Baby, i got to give this $200 a month to building fund. I know it's going to stress us. But I love God and I want to do it. No. We find it so easy to sacrifice for material things. But we struggle sacrificing for spiritual things. It's so easy to lay up treasure on earth. But so difficult to lay up treasure in heaven. Hello? You ever been there? I know this gets a little plain, but that's just where it's at. Have you ever considered what some extra money might help on Africa? Some orphans that eat rice and beans all the time while you have steak and pork chops and burgers and chicken? I pay my tithes, that's enough, is it? You don't measure your love in this, okay? You, you don't tell God that's enough. You can't be his disciple if that's what you're going to do. He says, you got to forsake all that you have. you got to love me supremely, and you got to carry a cross. Yeah. You mean my Christianity is going to actually cost me something? Yeah. Yeah, it is. But that new rifle cost you something. Those new tires on that car cost you something. Hey, hello. Am, am I making any sense here today? It's awful quiet. That's okay. It's true. This is where we're at. And if we think in the age that we're fixing to go into, that it, we're going to build a church and it ain't going to cost us anything, I'm going to tell you right now, pack your bags up and go home because you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. No, we're going we're gonna to have to say, brother, can you do this? Brother, can you do that? I'm tired. I don't have time. But there's a need in the body. Do you love Jesus supremely? Are you conscious of the fact that your Christianity is meant to cost you? You bear a daily burden when that cross beam of that cross is placed on your back. You feel it, but it's too heavy. No, no, it's not too heavy. Listen to the illustration. The cross you carry will never be more than you're able to carry. How do I know that? Because he said you pick it up. If you can't pick it up, you can't carry it. But if you can pick it up, you can carry it. Pick it up and put it on your back. If you don't have the ability and enough strength to pick it up and put it on your back, then don't worry about it. It ain't your cross. Yeah. Now, God will stretch you. It's interesting thing about it. The more you carry, the more you'll find you can carry. <laughs> you'll gain strength. Yes, sir. By picking it up every day. I got to hurry up here. I want to close this real quick. Real quick. He gives this summary requirement. Forsake all you've got. Forsake all you've got. Love me supremely sacrifice, bear that cross, live your life for others. And he said, guess what? And then he comes down. He said, that's forsaking all your have. That's basically what that is. That's a summary of what things he's already stated. Then he's, he, he throws this thing in there. He throws this thing in here. 
just bear with me this morning. If you can make it through this morning, you'll make it, all right? Maybe I'm your cross today. I don't know. Okay. So you've you, you got this. He says, he starts talking about salt. What's that got to do with this? When you've got a people who are supremely loyal to Jesus and they identify with him and live their lives for others, you cannot help but make an impact on the world. And without fulfilling those demands, you'll never be salt. Now we know what salt does, but let's bring it down home real quick here. Three things they use salt for. Basically, three things quickly. Number one, salt is a preservative. Salt is a preservative. Take something that's good, something that's uncorrupted, a piece of meat, and rub it down with salt, get the salt to it, and you'll preserve the meat. Salt will not fix meat already corrupted. Salt does not change something corrupted to become something uncorrupted. Salt preserves something that's uncorrupted in an uncorrupted state. Salt. Now there's other illustrations whereby we can win people to Christ and where, whereby people can uh, uh, be turned around. That's something that happens in God's kingdom that can't happen in the natural world, all right? He can take a piece of rotten meat and make it good again, all right? He can do that. He's got that ability. But that's not your ability, all right? Salt can't do that. You're salt. He's more than salt. He's Savior. Woo, hallelujah. Glory to God. He can take something rotten and make But you can't take something that's rotten and make it good. But I tell you what I can do. I can take this little codger right here. I call him Clyde. I love this guy. This is my buddy, Curly. I love him. He's, I love to see his smile. I love to meet him. And I don't know, Clyde just seemed to fit him. I don't know. I just liked it. Don't get married to Bonnie, all right? All right, anyway, here's Clyde. Here's my buddy, little Ethan. He's uncorrupted. Drugs hadn't got him yet. Not going to get him. All right. He hasn't been out there in the cesspools. He hasn't been in the bars. He does his mind. He had been plunged out there in some goobly gark and junk and mess and where he'd become addicted and sinful and burdened with a filthy mind. He doesn't have all that. Oh, glory. I tell you what, if I live that life that Jesus told me to live and I love Jesus supremely and I'll bear that cross, can I tell you something? We can keep this boy from going sour. Let me tell you why the churches are losing their youth. There's no cross bearing and there's no loyalty to Jesus Christ. I tell you why their children are going backslidden. Why their children are going out in the world. I tell you why they're choosing homosexuality over truth and righteousness. Because the marriages in the church and the lifestyles in the church are just like the world. There's no cross bearing and there's no loyalty to Jesus. They see the same selfishness in their parents that they see in the world. They go home and they don't see my mom and dad that's been offended and looks at the family and says, family, we've been hurt. But Jesus said we must take up a cross and we're going to go back and love our brother. And we're not going to worry about the hurt. That's our cross. We didn't choose this in terms of that we wanted hurt, but this is the way it's come. And 
We're not going to sit and belittle and badger this person. We're going to go show them the love of Christ and pray that God may help them to rise above their difficulty. That'll make an impression on that mind. But if he sees the same hatred and malice in mom and dad that he'll experience somewhere else in the world, then why would he bear a cross? Salt will keep this little lad from becoming corrupted. Woo, hallelujah. Salt will preserve our children. Salt can take a new Christian and keep him from going wicked or going back. Salty churches will have very few backsliders. Come on now. If we got a bunch of backsliders, it's because they're finding the same mess in here that they found out in the world. Oh, glory to God. But let them find here a salty people who love God, who bear the cross. And we don't ask the world for a favor. Hallelujah. Woo! Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, my friend. Thank you. I'll tell you what salt will do. You laughed at him. I'll use you. <laughs> Sitting on the front seat in the Pentecostal church is one of the most dangerous things you can do. Do it anyway, son. Do it anyway. Let me just say that this guy here, he's not, but we're just going to say it. That his, his, he's got a bland personality. He's just boring. He doesn't care about nothing. He doesn't do nothing. He don't want to do nothing. He's just a nothing, nothing. His life is aimless. He ain't got no season. Now, he might get the job done, but there ain't no zest. Ain't no zing. There ain't no Texas Pete. Yeah. You ever eat beans without salt? They'll sustain you. But, buddy, COVID did this for me. Yeah. Buddy... I said, uh, the grace of God, I'll never take my taste buds for granted again. I'm going to savor every bite, Brother Nichols. <laughs> Woo, glory to God. Yes, sir. I'm telling you, eating became a monotony. Something I had to do, not something I wanted to do. I said, damn, my wife, oh, man, she's made, oh, that's going to be so good. And then I remember, I can't taste it. That is going to be boring. I said, well, baby, that was a good meal, but I really won't know because I couldn't taste it, you know. But it looked good. I appreciate the labor you put into it. But you know what? Uh, I couldn't taste it. Do you know, to, in order to season, you got to be different than the thing you're seasoning. Yeah. But we got someone maybe whose life isn't quite on track. Their life's a little bland. It's not really going anywhere. They just hang on the crowd. Hallelujah. One thing we can do is we can season him. Yeah. <laughs> Woo, 
we can show him the excitement of serving the Lord. Can I tell you something right now? That the monotonous thing, the thing that you've got to do, oh my, when you add salt to it, you got to eat something, all right? But if you can put some salt to it, it makes a necessary become more joyful. It makes that which you got to do become more delightful. Hallelujah. It is Christianity that ought to be able to show the joy on the job. It's Christianity that ought to show the delight in the marriage. To the rest of the world, it's monotonous. To the rest of the world, we just got to get through it. Go to my job. Get it done. Get it done. But we add the season. Glory to God. We add the salt. We add to the world and say, there's joy in serving Jesus and doing the monotonous thing of life. We can do the boring with contentedness. Thank you, son. You with me? Salt. How positive is your life's influence on people around you? How much do people like to be in your company? I hear a lot of people complain, I ain't got no friends, you ain't made any. Nobody ever invites me over. You ain't invited anybody over. Come on, brother. Nobody likes me. You don't like anybody. Nobody loves me. It's because you don't love them. We love him because he first loved us. You became the friend of God because he first became your friend. Hello? You're only going to have to listen to me once today. I'm just going to put it out right here. We'll finish this up, and then you'll be done with me. Listen. Our life is here to season. If you give the same boring response on your job that everybody else does, you're not salt. And you're not cross-bearing, and you're not loving Jesus supremely. Hello? Let me give you that third reason real quick. When something has been judged... And it's done. They throw salt on it. They salt the land. Do you know what Sodom and Gomorrah became? A land of salt. It's buried under the Dead Sea. And the woman that looked back became a pillar of salt. Salt scattered on the land will ruin it. You'll not grow anything. You'll not bring up anything. And when something's been brought under judgment and you scatter the salt on it, you make it so you can't bear anymore. That's it. It's done. That's our job. The church doesn't judge anything anymore. There comes times we got to make some final decisions. There comes times the church has got to stand up and say, listen, this is under the judgment of God. We're bearing it and we're putting salt on it. It ain't never going to bear fruit again. It ain't never coming up again. It ain't resurrecting around here again. We want nothing to do with it. We're not playing with Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not negotiating with Sodom and Gomorrah. We're burying it. Glory to God. We're not going to find a Christian homosexual. We're burying homosexuality. We don't have Christian lesbianism we bury it we put salt on it we make it unfruitful we make it so it can never pop up in our midst there are things that need to be judged and buried and salted with salt so they never rise up again but if you lose it you're not good for anything nothing I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not being ugly. A good bulk of the church world is utterly worthless. 
No salt whatsoever. None. And he ends it up and said, whoever's got ears to hear, let him hear. Bear your cross. Get your cross. Pick it up. Pick it up. Declare your loyalty to me. Folks kick you out say, I'll still follow Jesus. Declare your loyalty to me. Come on, join this battle. Get in that watchtower. Come on, follow me. Be some salt. Let's preserve this world from corruption. You see, our world's going down. It is, but it hasn't went entirely down. We can shut some things we can still preserve. Woo! Glory to the Lamb of God. We got some folks in here we can preserve. Come on. Hallelujah. And the Lord can change some that are corrupt. And we can keep them from preserving. But we're not going to change and preserve America until we're salt. Glory to the Lamb of God. Until the church is the church full of the power of God. And that we live the way Christ wants us to live. Let the world see that we'll make our sacrifices to build this church right. and to bring people here right. and to bring a, make a haven for them. And he says, if you can hear it, if you got ears for it, if you can stomach it, come on. Yes. Guess what? Those big religious leaders didn't say, he's right. We're on board with him. Let's go. Nah. They started going throughout the crowd. He don't know what he's talking about. He's lost his marbles or something. This cross. You won't find that in the law. There's a cross business. What's that? Cursed is a man that hangs on a tree. He's God's man. He's called you being a curse. We need to get rid of him. But what about the miracles he did? Uh, he's working with Beelzebub. Yeah. Hey, hey, how many of you? Listen real quickly here. How many of you have questioned your Christianity when you started listening to the murmuring going on around you? The murmuring on social media. Come on. The murmuring just among people at your job. The murmuring in the church world. You ain't got to live that way. You ain't got to go that far. Dude, bearing a cross is pretty far. <laughs> That's pretty tough. I don't care how you measure it. That's tough. You do have to go that far. Jesus said you do. You know who came? The nobodies. The outsiders. Publicans. Sinners. Harlots. Diseased. Downtrodden. They ain't got nothing anyway. Yeah, I'll take that cross up. Let me hear more, Jesus. I'll take that cross. Because you know what? I've seen in you something I ain't seen in that self-righteous rabbi. I've seen something in you they wouldn't even cross the street to talk to me. Oh, no, sir. Matter of fact, the only reason I got to go to that Pharisee's house today, the only reason that dropsy guy with the dropsy got to be in the Pharisee's house today is because you were there. Because he'd have never had me there if you hadn't have been there. Oh, glory. I'll take that. Are we willing to touch a life that nobody else would touch? Are we willing to reach out to somebody that no one else would reach out to? Because I'm going to tell you something right now. There's still some downtrodden in this society, and the Lord wants to save them. And if you'd quit 
measured them up and said, Lord, help me to reach them. Help me to touch them. Let me bear a cross. Let me be sold 